aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to the 36th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Jenny Brentis, the senior writer for Sports Illustrated and the Monday Morning Quarterback. And the focus of this episode is big event coverage. Today's Monday, and Jenny spent all day yesterday in Minneapolis at the Super Bowl. So how do you cover an event when hundreds upon hundreds of others are covering it too? What do you look for? How do you find stuff that stands out? I've been in Jenny's shoes, and it's harder than it sounds. So let's talk big games and big moments and crowded locker rooms right now on Two Riders Slinging Yang. Okay, Jenny, first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this. I, pre- I mean, you know... It's a day after the Super Bowl, for, so for all I know, you uh, you wanted to be out in the four degree weather doing snow angels or something. So I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you doing this instead. Is it freezing? Yeah, is this cold? Is it is this cold as I think it is out there? Yes. Well, we took a cab home from the stadium last night, and it was five below zero. I think it feels like sixteen below, and we were waiting outside for the. The car to arrive, and that was a brutal five minutes. So yes, it is that cold. Wait, so I don't know. To, to me, you probably disagree, right? I I used to I grew up watching the sort of NFL film Super Bowl highlights. It was like those are my. I mean, those are I love those so much, and it was always the sun shining off of the stadium in Miami, or the palm trees, or the sign to the Rose Bowl glistening in the sun. And I just I feel like. Four degrees in Minnesota is not Super Bowl acceptable to me. But are you okay with it? Are you good with that? Yeah, it was definitely an odd Super Bowl. I didn't really mind it. I mean, the stadium is beautiful. That's what, you know, you're going to see on the highlights. And, you know, I, I like the idea that you can spread it around to different places. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, it was it was cold. And it, uh, you know, I think it, it sort of, dampened a little bit of the excitement around the week, I think, just because there weren't as many people out and about milling around, you know, you're kind of confined inside spaces. And I think a lot of people who normally would have come for Super Bowl week didn't come just because of the weather. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Um, so I, uh, I come to this, uh, this conversation, like I really wanted to talk big game coverage and I haven't done that this yes on, yet on this podcast. And, um, my quick backstory, and the reason it always fascinates me, is the beginning of the end of my career as a sports writer or, or an SI writer was um, 2001 World Series, Diamondbacks, Yankees, one of the great World Series of all time. And before one of the games, I was sitting in the press box with Steve Canella and Tom Verducci, and I started having really bad stomach cramps. And I had to leave the game. And I ended up watching the game from a couch at my, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife's house apartment. And I was so happy not to be at the game, right? It was one of the great world series games of all time. And all I could think about was the post game locker room, getting hit in the head with a camera, the shoving, the stupid questions, the overkill, the cliches. And I realized like at that moment, if I don't want to be at the world series, maybe I shouldn't be covering major league baseball for a living. And I wonder, how do you feel? about the big events, about covering big events? 
So when you're sitting there before kickoff, that's, you know, an amazing feeling, right? You take in the moment and you're like, awesome that I'm here. I'm about to see something that's going to be history and definitely embrace that side of it. I also understand the other side of it, the anxiety of saying, okay, I'm not going to be able to ask all of the questions I want to ask probably post game because it's going to be chaos. I'm going to miss something. I'm not going to see this certain moment. I'm not going to be able to capture the whole thing. So I think that part is always challenging to me and a little bit daunting. So I think sometimes I sort of have to psych myself up for the big events, remind myself that this is something that's going to be, you know, it's a huge piece of history. It's amazing to be able to chronicle it in part, even if you can't get exactly everything that you wish you could. Right. So how did you, how did your day start? Literally, how did your day start yesterday? Like how the game, the kickoff, I guess, in, in Minnesota is 530. Um, what time are you getting to the stadium? What is your plan of, of attack? How are you sort of approaching it? Yeah, so we took the media shuttle from the media center, which was at the Mall of America. It was a quick drive from our hotel. So I left with uh, two of my colleagues from our hotel. We took a Uber or to the Mall of America and then just boarded the shuttles. Um, so that was 1230, which was local time, five hours before kickoff. And then, you know, we rode the bus over there. There was a little bit of a backup at the security line, largely because I think they didn't want us standing outside um, while we were waiting to get into the tent. So they kept people on the bus until the line kind of cleared through a little bit, um, which, you know, yesterday or Super Bowl Sunday in Minneapolis was the coldest it had been all week. So um, they were keeping us on the bus as long as possible. So we left, I left the hotel at 12 and um, actually had a bet with my coworker about when we would be in our seats. And we are the over under was 2 p.m. And I took the over and we got into our seats at like 2.05. <laughs> that's good that's good are you are you i don't know, like are you do you know what your day is going to be like are you do you know your objective do you know exactly what you're going to do or do you know what the three hours before the game are going to entail more or less well since we had so many people there we pretty clearly had to divvy things up so you know peter king was doing um his column but also a a, a podcast from the game and then we sort of had responsibilities divvied up. So I had to file the, the game story right at the gun. And then I had to write through for uh, a game story for the commemorative issue. So those are my two points of focus. And then everyone else had something else. You know, someone was, you know, assigned to follow Tom Brady. Um, someone was kind of a floater. They would go, if the Eagles won, they would do Eagles. If not, they would do Patriots. Um, people were contributing to, other people's stories, having more than one reporter on certain stories that were important, like the magazine game story. So everything was kind of neatly divided up, uh, you know, before kickoff. Right. And are you, do you, um, like, what do you do for three hours before kickoff? I mean, there's nothing to write. Well, you can't yeah. go down to the locker room. So what are you doing? There's not a lot to watch either. I mean, you can't, I watched warm ups. We had a meeting in the press box going over our plan for the day. Um, you know, I like to watch warm ups. I think you can see a lot sometimes. Less so in the Super Bowl because there's so many people on the field. But, you know, in a Patriots game, it's always fascinating to watch Ernie Adams, you know, his director, Belichick's director of football research. I always notice that he, you know, is watching the other team when they do their walkthrough, trying to glean what information he can glean. Obviously, you know, with Brady in the hand, what did he have on his hand? Um, so I did that. And I also started trying to, you know, write some chunks that could possibly be used in a running game story just about you figure whichever team wins you sort of know what it's going to mean so i tried to pre-write a little bit but 
in reality, that stuff never holds up, I find. <laughs> yeah, right. It's actually funny. I, I think a lot of people don't realize anyone who's been in this business long enough has written a story during a game. Oh, has done a few things. Number one, has written a story during a game and then at the last minute had to tear the whole thing up and, you know, or delete it all off the screen and start again. Um, and also that throughout a game, we are literally writing the story as it goes along because we know at the end you have to turn it over as quick as possible. Are you, um, do you enjoy that process or is it kind of a nightmare? You know, it's, it's difficult because you can't watch every aspect of the game that you wish you could watch, right? So as soon as, Brandon Graham strip stacked Brady. I said, okay, I'm writing, I, I'm, you know, writing through from the top to my graphs that I've written below with an Eagles win because I figured at that point it was so unlikely. Um, but that was really the first point that it, it's, it really was tilted in one team's favor. And that's with two minutes to go. So I didn't really, I didn't really watch much of the rest. You know, I, I looked up here and there when the Patriots got the ball back with less than a minute left. I watched the final pass fall incomplete to Gronkowski. But if you're writing because it's due right away, you're, you're going to miss some of the nuance in the final minutes. Can you get nuance from like, how far away are you in the press box? Well, that's true as well. We were, we were pretty far. I'm not going to complain about our seats. They, they were pretty good seats. All things considered, we were, you know, um, basically parallel to the end zone, but you know, you're in the third row back. You need binoculars really to see anything. Um, I think, yeah, it, you know, you rely a lot on the TV replays because you are so far, especially when you're on the opposite end of the field from which they're driving. Right. It's really interesting because it's like, uh, I, I just remember when I first covered golf, I, I rarely cover golf in my career. But I remember covering golf and the first time I covered golf, I tried to walk out on the course and I would walk along and all the other golf riders, all the veteran golf riders were watching 98% of it on TV monitors from the clubhouse. <laughs> Because that's how you see the game. And you would think like, oh, you're going to be at the Super Bowl. That's amazing. But you're still kind of riding off of TV in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you said that. I covered golf once and I had I walked to the course. It was Best Page Black <laughs> and it was a U.S. Open, I believe. And it was a it, torrential downpour, so much so that the tournament extended into Monday because they had missed so much time. But, um, you know, with football, right, it's, I don't know, it, it, different press boxes give you different views. You know, if you're lower to the field, I, I feel that, you know, you can see more, but you're still, yeah, really reliant on the replay. A, because there's too many people to watch all at once. You're going to miss something, um, you know, and B, in this case, like, I, it was hard for me to even see what happened on the strip sack, right? Like it, without replay, it would have been very hard to describe that play. Right. And that's okay. Um, you're uh, your story. So I have your story in front of me, Foles, gold, Eagles are Super Bowl champions. And it's obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a quick turnaround. We need to get a story up ASAP. Um, do you know how, how long after the game did you actually send this story in? Probably, Final whistle. Yeah. Five minutes. That's amazing. So you have like, like this is an example. So your lead to the story is, uh, you know, Dateline Minneapolis. The ending was as improbable as the Eagles run itself. Tom Brady needing one score with 40, 141 seconds to work with. If you're the Patriots, you take that bet. But these Eagles long ago decided they're going to buck convention. How else do you make the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback? Or after losing your signal calling linebacker, your all pro left tackle, your most versatile running back, or with one, with a head coach whose only previous experience running a team was a Calvary Baptist Academy a decade ago. So did you write that in its entirety 
um, at the very end of the game? Or did you have that ready, except for the 141 seconds sort of thing, um, whatever, 20 minutes earlier? I wrote most of that at the end of the game. The part about the, you know, head coach, Calorie Baptist, the quarterback who almost retired, I had written that sentence earlier, but the rest of it was right at the gun. Right. And are you freaking out at all? Is there, have you done yeah. this long enough that you do not get sort of, holy shit, holy shit, I got to turn this thing around quick. Do you get that still or no? Well, I think you're freaking out because, you know, when I used to write for a newspaper, right, you'd send in the running game story. It might go into some early editions, but who's really seeing that, right? And then you write for, you know, Sports Illustrated's website. A lot more people are going to have eyes on it. And, you know, it's still up today, right? You know, we, we, we hadn't subbed it out. And so... Um, you just don't want to put up something that's, you know, unintelligible or not interesting at all. You don't want to put up a story that's total play by play. Right. Have you had, have you, do you feel like you, do you feel like the audience differential? You were used to write for the Star Ledger, obviously out of New Jersey, um, writing for SI, writing for the SI website. Do you feel like there's a different take on your pieces, a different sort of audience reaction to your pieces? writing for SI as opposed to writing for a regional newspaper? Well, it's, it's interesting because when you write for a regional newspaper, you know, you're, you're very team or, or region centric, right? So everything I write is going to be from, you know, the Giants point of view or the Jets point of view. Um, and all the people who are reading it are reading it from that point of view. So I think that's the biggest difference because the feedback you get um, is is not necessarily from one team specific fan base. Right. Um, did you, do you, uh, so after you write this, do you go down to the, did you go down to the locker rooms? Yeah. You know, I needed to file a write through for the commemorative issue by this morning. So I went down to the locker room, but you know, the thing about the Super Bowl is it takes so long for everything to happen. So, you know, I, I filed and, you know, I missed Bill Belichick's press conference, but that's clearly going to be on a transcript and said through all the TVs and, and the press box. Um, but, you know, I, I, I got down there in time for Brady. The Patriots players were filing in and then the Eagles locker room didn't open for, gosh, it must have been 30, 40 minutes um, because they do the trophy presentation on the field. So. With the big event, you definitely have a lot more flex time. Whereas if it were a regular season game, the, the locker room's opening five, 10 minutes after they run off the field. Right. So how do you, um, I used to say when I covered baseball, like Verducci was the master of the locker room. It could be, it could be the world series or it could be Cubs reds in whatever June. And he always knew where to go. You know, he always, he was a master of not following the pack which I always thought was really sort of a good lesson for a young journalist. He didn't, everyone ran to Jeter. He was going to the bullpen catcher. You know, it was like one of those yeah. things where you'd be like, man, this guy really knows. But how do you work a Super Bowl locker room where there, I'm, there's got to be double the number of media as, as players in that place. Um, it's frenzied. It's crazy. People are crying. People are euphoric. I don't, you know, how do you work it? Like, what are you looking for? What are you angling for? How do you go about it? No, that's a, it's a challenge. You're right. I mean, it, you always want to get things that are away from the back. I mean, the first thing in this particular locker room, there was just so much scene. You know, you walked in and, you know, there's always some champagne spraying, but they were just players were milling about enjoying the moment. So I think this time I walked in and I just kind of took it all in for 10 minutes or so because, you know, you didn't really want to interrupt or miss some of the, the, you know, organic scene that was going on. Um, and then there were a few plays that, you know, you wanted to get 
a player on like the, you know, trick play touchdown from Trey Burton to Nick Foles. That was, you know, so Burton happened to be one of the first people I saw. And then, you know, there were just Alshon Jeffrey had made the Super Bowl guarantee. So there's a couple things in your head, but you know, you're going to miss people. So like I didn't even see Brandon Graham because he must have been on another end of the locker room or with his family. And by the time we closed, I had totally missed him. So, you know, at the same time, they're taking them to this media room where they do podiums. Um, but you know, then if you do that, you never go in the locker room and you miss all this great scene. So, you know, we, we were in there when Doug Peterson is addressing his team really for, you know, th- that was, that was his post game address because everything's so chaotic leaving the field. It took more than an hour for him to stand in front of his team. And at that point, right. the locker room was open. So that I'd seen that this time. I saw that with Pete Carroll when they beat the, the Broncos in the Super Bowl. So you get to be there for the coach's post game address, which was pretty cool. And that was, that was a scene. And then he called Malcolm Jenkins up afterwards. So, um, I think that, that those are the things that I think you want a quote to explain things like certain plays or things that happen in the game. But, you know, also you want to take in this, this scene and what you're, what you're seeing in front of you. It just seems like it's really, really, it seems like the challenge nowadays is to find something that no one else is going to have, but it almost seems, if not impossible, near impossible, because just the mass numbers of people, and also the media savvy of players, which is much different than it used to be, I wouldn't even know how, I really wouldn't, I, I do not know if I could enter that locker room and find anything overly unique or original with that many people in there and that amount of frenzy. I don't know, no, I mean, does that make yeah. me laugh? No, I mean, I, I was walked out of there sort of feeling that same way yesterday. Like, you know, I, I saw some cool things, but other media people were in there at the same time. They saw the same things I saw, right? You know, you hope that you get a line here that's a little bit different or a quote here that's a little bit different. But like you said, there's so many media members. It's, it's, it's saturated. It's oversaturated. So, um, I think that's what's so hard about big event coverage. Honestly, you're almost always left the next day feeling like you missed something. You should have done a better job in this area. Maybe you could have uncovered something else because you read the coverage across the way and you see that everyone pretty much has similar stuff. Yeah. In a way it comes down to writing, doesn't it? I mean, it comes down to, in a, in a way it does. Like it seems like what will separate good, the great stories from the good stories to the okay stories. If you're all having access to the relative of the same thing is, maybe uniqueness of vision and sort of ability to turn a quick phrase. I don't even know anymore because it's so, again, you're all being exposed to the same thing. So it's interesting. I don't know. It's a toughie. Yeah. It's a toughie. It is a toughie. Or I guess, you know, if you have a relationship that gives you access to somewhere else that other people don't have access to. Do you feel like you are, how how is that as far as your strengths and weaknesses, how is your, because it's interesting being, I, I mean, I went through this too. When you write for a national place, oftentimes you're swooping in. You know, like when you were at the Star Ledger, obviously you'd see the same guys every day. You see the Giant players, you see the Jet players, wherever you're covering. From a national standpoint, swooping in, how do, you, um, how do you go about establishing relationships with players who you may not see that often? It's a great question. I think that's the biggest challenge of my job, to be honest with you. You know, it's been five years since I've joined the MMQB. Peter reminded me of that in a text this morning. I can't believe it's been five years or, well, five years since we first talked about joining the MMQB. And going from being a beat writer where you're around the team every single day and they know exactly what you're about um, to swooping in, you know, 
you, you get a little bit better at it over time. You just basically have to recognize it's, sometimes it's going to be an imperfect situation. You do the best you can. Certainly, sometimes you have opportunities to get to know a player a little bit better. Maybe you spend time one-on-one with them for a story. Maybe you just have an idea that they really like, you know, but it's not, to me, it's, it's, it's an ongoing challenge because I just felt like when I was on a beat, like they, they all knew the kinds of questions I would ask that you could build respect over time. I think if you're a person that is sort of, um, has takes a slow burn to building relationships, which I am, I think that this part of the job is going to be more challenging for you. So who's someone like, who's a player right now in the NFL who you feel like you have a pretty solid relationship where if you walked up to them, they'd be like, Oh, Hey Jenny, how's it going? Well, I'm trying to think, I mean, that's a, there's a lot of them. And, um, I guess mostly probably giants, you know, since I, I would be around the giants more often. Um, but you know, there's, there's, players that I've spent time with. I mean, I, I, for whatever reason, I, I, you know, I don't want to specifically single someone out and say, I have a great relationship with them because maybe they think differently, you know? Right. I'm just interested how you actually like how you forge, you know, cause I struggled with this in a huge way, which maybe you do too. Like when I got to SI, I would always want to have guys in different locker rooms who I could sort of use as my go-to guys, or I could at least walk up to them and they'd be able to say to other players, Oh yeah, no, you can talk to him. He's okay. Or, you know, yeah, you know, Hey, how's it going? And, and I, I found that a huge challenge from a national standpoint. And it was always the thing you were going against when you went to a local area because the beat writers have these set in stone relationships and you're trying to get something, um, and breaking down that barrier is a little bit difficult, you know? Yeah. And keeping the relationship alive when you're not there all the time is another challenge. Yeah, very much so. Um, so you did, uh, in the lead up to the Super Bowl, you did, you drove to the Super Bowl, correct? Yes. Yes. From Foxborough. So what was it? I, so was it, was it from Foxborough or you drove to minute? Was it by, like, who were you with in this car? Was it just you and your stuff? Yeah. So it, for the whole trip, it was me and my coworker, Kalen Kaler. And then mm-hmm. we had Jonathan Jones, another coworker sort of joined us midway in Ohio. Um, but we mapped out a route to drive to the Super Bowl. We've done this a few years running. The idea actually came from my old newspaper at the Star Ledger when the Giants were in the Super Bowl in 07 and 11. Um, they did the same thing and they, you know, stopped at interesting places along the way. I mean, the idea behind it was just what we were talking about earlier. You know, the fact that it's so oversaturated, you know, media a week at the Super Bowl. It's really hard to get things that are different or interesting or meaningful. So we thought if we go other places, um, you know, go to hometowns, colleges of players, coaches, um, you'll find out some interesting things along the way. I don't know. I, I enjoy it. I think it gives you a different perspective. I think when you get the Super Bowl Sunday, you recognize where some of these players have come from. Brandon Graham was a good example. You know, we went to his we visited with one of his high school coaches who took us to this this field where he played on and it was this high school in Detroit that, you know, they had this dirt field. There was really nothing there, no lights. They the play past dusk. They had a, parents had to turn the headlights on. There was like a cement post at the two yard line that they tried to, you know, uh, the base of a post, a leftover base. They had to cover with dirt, you know. So you basically see that this is a guy who, you know, had, was changing in a hallway where some makeshift lockers and an abandoned elementary school, you know, so 
it's interesting to me to see like, wow, look at that field where an NFL player came from compared to some of these fields we see other places where they have these five-star facilities that could rival some colleges. Um, and so to think about what it takes to, to come, become an NFL player having come from, from that field was interesting to me. My favorite thing is like people talk about, they think about the, uh, you know, the exciting life of the American sports writer and, oh man, the places you, your trip included st stops in Fargo, Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, I think, and Rochester. Do I have that correct? Oh yeah. You know, just a, a fun <laughs> ride through the, the Midwest and Western New York. It always seems to work out that way. I mean, you know, I guess, you know, last year was Houston. So we ended up going through the South for a bit. The year before was San Francisco, and I was only on it for the first week to Chicago. But from there, there were some cool drives through the West. So, yeah, this was not the scenic route. That's for sure. It's like a uh, it's like a Jeopardy answer to cities you don't want to visit in America. I'll take Fargo, Detroit, Cleveland, Buffalo, and Rochester. We're we'll in Rochester too. Well, I have to say, Fargo was actually pretty cool. The downtown area was really neat. There was a, I shouldn't say actually pretty cool, because that makes it, right. but I just didn't know what to expect, you know. Um, there was a theater with a Fargo sign, and they had some good restaurants downtown. There's, It's hard to find bison there, despite the fact that the North Dakota State Bison, their local joke is not to eat the mascot. Yeah, don't but eat the mascot. But we had some good meals, <laughs> yeah. So it was a pretty cool city. Um, I just want to say that, I, so I read the stories, and I thought you were uh... I thought they were great. Being sincere, I thought they were great. I thought it was a great idea. I thought the execution was amazing. Um, and I thought the Fargo one, going to Carson Wentz, you know, Car Carson Wentz's sort of, you know, the place that made him was awesome. And, um, you know, you, you have a line. Far Fargo, is, Fargo is not a football town. It's a bison football town and a Carson Wentz town. Uh, North Dakota is traditionally Vikings territory, but Wentz's ascent in Philadelphia was enough to convince many locals to change their local allegiance, uh, their lifelong allegiance. Um, and the sort of the piece and the idea behind the piece was, number one, here's where he's from, but number two, the sort of stomach punch that came with his injury. Uh, how did you decide to do that story and sort of how did you go about it? Like, did you let all these people know you were coming? Did you just drive into town and sort of start asking? Yeah, this is, you know, the kind of the ultimate drop-in assignment. Really, we were looking at places along the route or close to the route between the AFC Championship game and the Super Bowl that would, you know, um, that would fit in. That would be good stories. And um, so we decided to add in Fargo, even though you know, we, we overshot Minneapolis a little bit, but we had been to the, the Brady family, his mom's hometown in Browerville, Minnesota. So Fargo was not too far from there. Um, but, yeah, you know, I reached out to the athletic department you know, asked who was around that, you know, knew Carson. Um, you know, I, I reached out to a local reporter who said, you know, these are some places you should check out. This, these are some places that they, the Eagles receivers had gone when they went to work out with Carson and Fargo this summer. Um, and then just sort of being around town, once you're there, you get some recommendations here and there. We walk through the student union. So the, I guess the challenge is like, you know, you're coming in, you have a day to get everything you need, basically. And so I guess we always just try to make it more than anything else. Like, a, let's just take you to this place. And, you know, I, I want to show you what it's like in Fargo and what people are thinking there. So if you think of it that way, it's a little bit less easy to get or, you know, you don't get as overwhelmed because you're not trying to do the definitive story, but you are trying to take your readers to a place that they may not go that's relevant to the game. Before we continue with Jenny Vrantis, 
A quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett, and we just watched the Super Bowl. That was an amazing game, right, Emmett? Which one? Uh, the Super Bowl. Eagles 41, Patriots 33. Yeah, I guess it was okay. Just okay. Oh, no, Dad. Everything suffers in comparison to the first USFL championship game when the Michigan Panthers shocked the Philadelphia Stars. I really miss those days. Well, here's the good news, Emmett. 503 Sports can bring all your USFL memories to life in jerseys and hats and sweatshirts. I gave 503 Sports this ad space in exchange for product. That's how much I love this stuff. Why? Because it's all throwback. We're talking USFL. We're talking World Football League. We're talking XFL, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, Old School Portland State. Or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a JoJo Town Cell Los Angeles Express jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Emmett Perlman and visit 503-sports.com. Let me ask you this question, and uh, I'm sure it's the number one question you get asked about your career in journalism, but this comes from a guy who was raised by a Jewish mother who really wanted me to become a, a lawyer or a doctor. Um, you are a BS from Penn State in biology and molecular biology. If I became a sports writer after getting a degree in biology and molecular biology, my Jewish mother would say, Jeffrey, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? You want to be a sports writer? She would, she would kill me. Uh, Jenny, how, what the heck happened here? How'd this happen? <laughs> I know. It's a great question. My parents asked that for a very long time. Um, <laughs> you know, I started writing for the student newspaper at Penn State, Daily Collegian. It was just kind of like a side hobby. My sister suggested it. Oh, this would be fun. I decided I wanted to write about sports because, you know, there's a lot of sports going on at Penn State. Um, you know, it's sort of the biggest thing on campus. And so I ended up writing for the sports section. I didn't put down science and health as one of my three preferences because I figured if I did, they would automatically assign me to the science and health section. And I really wanted to write about sports. And then, you know, as I got toward my junior and senior year, I started to think, well, maybe this is something I want to do as a career. Um, and you know, I don't use science a ton, but here and there you feel like it applies, especially when covering things like, you know, head injuries or, you know, um, injuries in general. Um, you know, I guess sometimes maybe you think applying rational thought to kind of approach questions and problems in the business might help a little bit, but it's definitely not a direct correlation. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I was a history major at Delaware. Um, John Wertheim, who we both know, you know, guy's a law degree. And I always think it doesn't hurt to have knowledge that isn't, you know, Terry Bradshaw's history with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like, it, it, you can't go wrong having sort of some base of understanding of, of fields other than, you know, touchdowns and field goals and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think if, if nothing else, it kind of makes you unique in the world of journalism that you're the one football writer in America with a, degree in biology and molecular biology. And usually most people ask me, what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, that comes with the, uh, comes with the territory as well. Right. Have you ever, have you ever, um, it's weird. So I entered the field in, uh, about a decade before you did. And people ask me, you know, should I get into journalism? Should I still get into sports writing? Is it still worth getting into? I see the cutbacks at ESPN and the cutbacks at SI and different places slashing left and right. Um, and I feel like I got in it when it was still kind of a charm time to be a sports writer. Um, you're a little more, you entered in, in a more modern sort of era. Would you still tell someone to become a sports journalist? And what would you say are the sort of hazards and potholes that they need to avoid or 
just be prepared for. You're right. I mean, it is a totally different year. Everywhere I've worked, everyone has said, oh, you know, you just missed the golden years here, you know, when we would unlimited travel budgets and we'd send such and such to this place. Um, basically, the entire time I've been in the business, there's been some kind of turbulence. You know, I, I joined the Star Ledger in 2007 and not long after there were huge rounds of buyouts. There was layoffs, you know, furloughs. Um, and then I came to Sports Illustrated and a lot of similar concerns. You know, it's just part of the business today. I mean, I wouldn't say it should be a deterrent because you can obviously still have a, a career in this business. You know, there's so many of us, you know, who are paid to do something that we love to do. And I, I don't want to ever take that for granted. And I think, you know, when I was at the Star Ledger, everyone was worried that the ship was going down. But some of my colleagues who stayed are still there doing fantastic work, you know. So it's, I think, you know, if it's something you love, you shouldn't get spooked, but you also should go in with eyes wide open, knowing that, you know, there's going to be uncertainty, there's going to be turbulence. And I, I always say this to younger, um, you know, people getting into the business. I think it's important to remember how much luck is involved. Like, don't get discouraged on yourself if you don't have the same opportunities on the same timeline as other people, because a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time. You know, I got my opportunity at Sports Illustrated and the MMQB in part because I wrote for the Star Ledger and Peter King lived in Montclair, New Jersey and was a Star Ledger subscriber, you know? So that certainly played to my favor, just geographically having to be, be in the newspaper that he was reading every day. And so obviously, you know, you, you work hard and you hope people notice, but I, I know that it's so easy for people to get discouraged to say, why am I not getting the same opportunity as this person? Um, and I think it's important to remember that it's, it, sometimes it just, Things happen on different timelines for different people, and it's not necessarily a reflection on you or your talent. Do you feel like you can still be a um, a fan and a sports writer? You know, it's an interesting question because more and more that's becoming, you know, the trend. I, I see more and more people who are open and honest about their allegiances. So on one hand, I understand the transparency with the reader. And saying, this is the perspective that I'm coming from and recognizing that people want to read things from a lot of different perspectives. But for me, I, I always came from the place like, I, I think it's hard to, to cover events, to cover a sport. If you're, if you're tied to one team, if you're sitting in the press box, you know, hoping for an outcome other than the one that's best for your story. Um, it's just, it's hard for me to, to, to imagine not being slanted and not having that, you know, be some kind of disservice to the readers. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a, uh, I wrote for a good, a good amount of time for Bleacher Report, and they have a writer right now, I won't name names, who um, covered the Super Bowl, brags openly on her Twitter account about being a diehard Seahawks fan, uh, tweeted a thank you to Nike this week for the free sweatshirt, and I just thought, I don't want to really be a part of this journalistic world. Like, I... I don't really want, I don't want that. And I don't want young journalists to think that's the way to go. I respect the fact that there's people who want to read things from different perspectives, but you know, I, I would have a hard time doing that. I just know myself. Like, I don't think, I don't really root for any teams, you know, anymore. I went to Penn State, so I always will have a, a tie and, and hope that the program does well. Um, but I, you know, I, I would have a hard time being a, a, a diehard fan and then covering, covering that in that league yeah you know what's weird what i always find really strange about this all it's like um 
I don't want to root for a team. Like I don't, when I was 12, I lived and died with the New York Jets, but I was 12 and people, people said, as I got older, well, how did you stop rooting for a team? It's not that hard. You know, people like fans would be like, Oh, you love that team. You hate that team. It's like, I don't even care. I don't care. Like I just enjoy the games and I enjoy watching the games and I enjoy good stories. But I don't think it's particularly hard to turn off a rooting interest or one. I don't think it'd be hard for you if they assign you to cover a Penn State, Arizona State football game to not sit there in the press box secretly rooting for Penn State to win. Agree? No, that's true. I, it's true. I mean, certainly I covered Penn State for the student newspaper when I was there. And so, yeah, you, you turn it off. I mean, it's, I, I, I agree. I don't think that's that hard. That's a good point. Right. Um, let me ask you a final question, and it kind of goes back to football. And I think about this a lot whenever I read coverage of games, especially Super Bowls. Um, after a game, we in the media will inevitably uh, refer to sort of the Eagles or the Patriots, whoever, in sort of a collective. Like, we'll be like, they were a team of so-and-so. Or, you know, someone on the team will be quoted as saying, you know, as a group of guys, we just want it more than blah, blah, blah. And I always wonder, like, isn't that kind of weird? Like, there are 53, I don't, I don't even know. How many guys are on an NFL roster right now? Right, 53. All right, 53 guys on an NFL roster. There's no way you know what guys are actually thinking. Like, five guys over there might be thinking, I hate my contract and I'm pissed. The backup quarterback might be thinking, I'm better than this guy. Two of the wide receivers might be thinking about their pregnant wives at home. Another guy might be... It seems like a weird way that we've kind of accepted to put a collective on 53 guys in a locker room. We have no idea what they're actually thinking or am I overthinking this a little bit? No, I mean, that's a fair question because everyone plays for different motivations, right? And you, you see a, a team together and then in the off season, you see guys getting disgruntled with contracts or, you know, being in tough negotiations or wanting to play somewhere else. So, you know, I guess there is a, a desire to sort of label a team and sort of pick an identity for them because I think that helps you sort of remember the teams in history, right? You know, I, I covered the 2007 Giants a little bit. I wasn't a beat writer, but I was certainly around them a lot. And so, yeah, that whole like underdog, you know, um, we're not going to be afraid of anything. And the Eagles this year really reminded me of that same team. And so I thought, you know, I, I picked the Patriots, but I, I, I kind of, I, I told myself, you know, you probably should pick the Eagles because they remind you a lot of that 07 Patriot or 07 Giants team, which, which I didn't. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we sort of want to categorize a team because it sort of makes the, the storyline I don't know, pop a little bit more. Maybe that's wrong, but I don't know. In some cases, they really do sort of take on an identity when they're on the field together. I mean, they're, there's something that they're collectively playing for and they do that in a certain fashion. And, you know, with the Eagles, you really saw, you know, they're not afraid to go for it on fourth and one. Uh, you know, Foles is not afraid of the big stage. Doug Peterson is, doesn't care if people thought he was a poor coach heading into the year. So, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a forced narrative, but sometimes it kind of, it enhances the story a little bit in a way that I don't think is entirely inaccurate. Um, well, listen, Jenny, I appreciate you doing this very much. Uh, you do great work. I feel like after, after spending your time freezing in Minnesota, I'm going to make sure you get a two week paid vacation to Hawaii. Hawaii yeah. sounds great. I, I think that, uh, I'll take that assignment. I want to thank today's guest, Jenny Brantis, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Brantis. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. 
One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on iTunes, and reviews are truly appreciated. The music is by MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and please remember, keep writing. <laughs>